Roar Nation, Promise Keepers is back July 31st, 2020. Estimated 80,000 men will be gathering at the AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas. Speakers are going to rock the house. It's going to be a full lineup. And on top of that, worship is going to be amazing. Why am I telling you so far in advance? Because tickets are on sale and they're slowly selling out. So that being said, I hope I see you there. I am planning on going. Go to promisekeepers.org to get info and tickets. Again, go to promisekeepers.org. See you there. Welcome to Are You Real? Finding the Authentic You, the podcast that focuses on Christians that are active in everyday life. Join in as we speak to everyone from successful business owners to educators to athletes about their faith and how it helps them reach out and revolutionize those around them to do the same. And now get ready to roar with your host, the voice of manifestation, John Fuller. Hey, Roar Nation, your host, John Fuller here. I'm really excited about today. As you always know, I love talking about the topic of business or entrepreneurship. So that being said, I have brought on a fantastic guest, Jordan Rayner. Jordan, you ready to roar, my friend? I'm ready to roar, man. Let's go, John. Let's do this. Okay, so Roar Nation, check this out. He is the author of Master of One and the national bestseller, Call to Create. He leads a growing community of Christians seeking to more deeply connect to their faith with their work. In addition to his writing, Jordan serves as the executive chairman of his tech startup, Threshold 360, where he previously served as CEO after launching a string of successful ventures. He's a highly sought-after speaker. Again, that's why he's on our show. Topic of faith and work. Rainer has been, uh, he's been spoken at Harvard, SX, SW, Q Ideas, and many other events around the world. He's been twice selected as Google Fellow, which I want to find out what that is. <laughs> and he has served in the White House under the United States for George W. Bush. All right, dude, that's a pretty cool intro, man. You've done some stuff, but I got to ask you, I've never heard that. What is Google, Google Fellow? What's a Google I, Fellow? Yes. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Google had a fellowship program way back when. This is early in my career uh, when I was doing a lot of um, uh, digital innovation for political campaigns. That's actually how I started my career, building software to help candidates raise money online. Uh, and Google had a fellowship program where you basically came in, got access to some of their tools and some of their learnings. And yeah, it was just their way of saying, hey, these people are doing really cool stuff uh, with our tools. And it was, it was a pretty informal thing, but it's a, it's a good bio line. Yeah, but you got recognized. That's exactly something. right. So, yeah, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, so Google recognized I had a you for friend, making a dent. I had a friend who was like, you realize like long-term, that's going to be way cooler than working in the White House, right? I'm like, I don't know about that, but, <laughs> it's, but it's cool, yeah. Well, d- d- depending on people's political views, saying exactly. you work for Bush, it's going to, so actually there is some credibility <laughs> in that statement that he said, for sure. Exactly, exactly. So, okay, so Jordan, why don't you dive into a little bit, just kind of a 30,000 foot view of who you are and what you currently do? Yeah, sure. So uh, currently, I serve as the executive chairman of a a pretty well-financed tech startup called Threshold 360, where we're on a mission to allow anybody to virtually step inside of any location in the world. Uh, We built the world's largest library of 360 media for hotels and restaurants and shops and attractions. Uh, So I served as CEO of the venture for two and a half years, left about nine months ago, and am now focused pretty much full-time on helping every Christian do their most exceptional work 
for the glory of God and the good of others. That's the mission of Jordan Rayner and company and my team that I have uh, working with me. Uh, and so what that looks like is writing books uh, and podcasts. We have our own podcast, helping Christians understand why their work is important, why their work has eternal significance, uh, and how to get more focused and more masterful at whatever their craft is. And that's really the subject of this book that I'm launching right now, Master of One, you know, the play on the old Jack of all trades, master of none, which has described me, definitely described me in the first half of my career and really understand, okay, how do we find that one thing that we want to choose to do masterfully well, not primarily for our own fame and fortune, but primarily because excellence loves our neighbor as ourself. Excellence reveals the character of the exceptional God that we're called to glorify. So that's what I'm all about, man. That's me at a, at a high level. Come on, man. That's good. I like that you said I caught on your mission statement, obviously. So you kind of tag your yeah. mission statement itself. And I thought that was really good. A lot of I don't know if other people caught on to that, but it's very clear as far as who you are, who you help and your purpose inside your mission. Yeah, thanks. So I like that. Okay. So why don't you dive in? Um, I want to hear your story. So let's back yeah. up. You're, how old are you right now? Uh, I'm 33. Okay, dude, you're young, man. You're like, oh, my whole life, I'm expecting you to say it. At first, when I saw your video, I'm thinking, dude, he looks really good for being in his 40s, man, uh, or something. Most people assume I'm 47, so yeah. Yeah, so, dude, you're way young. You haven't even started life, dude. No, so, no. anyways, let's back up to the beginning about sure. you kind of getting started into tech. So, yeah. really, this would be the basis of the foundations of why you wrote the book. So, yeah, take me there. Yeah. So, you know, the first part of my career, let's call it the first five years, I was the quintessential jack of all trades, master of none, right? So I had so many different professional interests. I entered at the White House when I was in college and a little bit after I made money playing piano in a wine bar. I was an entrepreneur. Early in my career, I had started and sold a couple of ventures. And so I, I was good. I, I think I think my story is very similar to a lot of your listeners probably, right? Like I was good at a lot of things. But there was nothing I could point to to say I was like really exceptional at, like really world class at. And here's the thing, right? Like, and I, I talk about this in the book Master of One. I don't have a problem being a jack of all trades, right? I, I think being a jack of all trades is the inevitable byproduct of discerning your calling and experimenting with a bunch of different things professionally, which I think is good. I right? agree. I do have a big problem. Being described as a master of none, and I really started to get convicted about this. Yeah, that's life. painful. That's painful, right? And, and and for me, it's because you know the essence of the Christian life. What we are called to as followers of Christ is to glorify God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And we can't do that when we're doing mediocre work. We do that through our work when we do our work masterfully well and serve as really effective, you know, imitators, image bearers of God's character of excellence, right? The opposite of mastery is mediocrity. And mediocrity, in my opinion, is a failure of love and a misrepresentation of our father, right? So, I, you know, over the years, I've been asking, okay, so what's the alternative to being a master of none? Uh, I believe the solution is being, you know, embracing being a jack of all trades, but choosing one thing to go big on professionally, right? So in Master of One in the book, that's exactly what I do. I, I help readers find that thing, focus on that one thing, and pursue world-class mastery of the work God created them to do. Okay, so that sounds great and all, because you're down the road, you're at the tail end of it, you wrote the book, okay? Sure. So yeah. I'm just playing devil's advocate here, <laughs> so I'm do. just, Please I'm do. like, I'm thinking of this. Okay, so for some of us, at the beginning of the show, I told you, so like, 
just skimming through your book, I'm laughing because it resonates because I have multiple companies doing yep. multiple things. Yep. And literally, to, like I told you, we're about to possibly start up a, a tech, <clears throat> sorry, a tech company. Mm-hmm. We own a construction company. My wife has a fitness business. Like we have all these things that none of them totally overlap, right? Mm-hmm. Um, good at all of I them. Would, I would disagree with that. Okay, which part? Uh, that they don't overlap. Okay. I'll explain why in a minute. But yeah. I like that. Okay. Continue, so, continue. so keep it here. So we're doing all these things. And the issue with that is, is I feel like, and, and I'm talking maybe my listeners too. So I'm trying to have this conversation as a listener um, that like, again, I'm, I'm good at them, but not great. Mm-hmm. And then you're trying to find that overlap between where do I go all in? Like I have, I always, I think life is a poker game. Like it just, it just works for me. I like to play poker. Yeah. I haven't played in a while, but like, where do I just throw all my cards and all my chips? I'm like, yeah. Hey, this is my last hand. I'm going yeah. all in. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, this is really tough, right? Because most people cannot do many things well vocationally at the same time, right? I, I believe as Christians, we are called first Corinthians 10 31, do all things for the glory of God, you know, gl- glory of God. That's something that's a, such a buzzword of the church. It, it, you know, what, what does it actually mean? You know, John Piper says to glorify God is simply to reveal his character, right? And so I think we got to honestly look at everything we've committed to in our lives and say, are we revealing God's character of excellence? Uh, obviously, we're not going to reveal perfection, right? But are we excellent in all things? There was a pastor down in South Florida who used to encourage his congregation to excellence in all things and all things for the glory of God. And so because of that, because I'm called to be an excellent father and husband uh, and church member, there's just by, by the reality of time and trade-offs, I can't be excellent at many things vocationally at the same time. I can't pursue mastery many things vocationally at the same time. That said, coming back to what you said a couple of minutes ago with all your various endeavors, I do think, and I spell this out in the book, and this, I think this is a helpful way to think about it, especially for entrepreneurs. A lot of people's one thing is going to be super specific right? It's going to be a specific job. Like for example, uh, my mother-in-law has been the director of children's choral music at Idlewild Baptist Church for 30 years. That's her one vocational thing, uber specific. But most people's one thing is far broader than that, right? So this, this started, uh, I started to understand this when I was talking to C.S. Lewis's stepson uh, in an interview for the book, a guy named Douglas Gresham. And you know, I was asking Doug, I was like, hey, you know, Jack, C.S. Lewis, he, he seemed to do a lot of things masterfully well, right? He was an excellent writer of fiction, nonfiction. He was an excellent teacher at Magdalen College. He was this great radio broadcaster. And Doug corrected me. He's like, no, no, no. He, those were all one thing. It was just a very broad one thing. He very much saw his one thing as teaching. Everything he did, C.S. Lewis was a teacher, and he was very deliberate about cultivating that craft and applying it in different contexts. So for you, John, it sounds like your one thing is actually my one thing. My one thing is entrepreneurship. I'm very good at spotting gaps in the market, bringing products to meet those gaps uh, in the market and setting up systems to ensure that they you know, thrive long-term, right? Like that's my skill set. And I apply that to tech startups. I also apply it to books. It's the same exact thing right? I'm bringing products to market to meet needs, right? And so that's a broad one thing uh, that I apply in a couple of different directions at a time. But even even as I get older and older, uh, I'm applying it with increasing levels of focus, right? So for example, 
I left the tech startup I was running as CEO, kind of the entrepreneur dream job to focus even more narrowly on my one thing of creating content products, right? And bringing those products into the world. So uh, I, that, that seems to resonate with the early readers of this book, this concept of a broad one thing, be it teaching or entrepreneurship or business. I think that's freeing for a lot of people. Okay, that's good. So let's back up. I want to go back on your journey yeah. again. So um, back to kind of original question. Sure. So we're going to go back at least um, 15, maybe 18 years. So yep. how you kind of got started, because so a lot of our shows about purpose. So stepping sure. into your purpose, which you have, you're kind of on that journey. But take me back to the beginning, maybe in college of like where you started and you kind of like, hey, this is at least a direction where I feel called. And you yep. started down that path. Yeah, sure. So I was kind of a weird kid. I was a very weird kid, right? Like I in the <laughs> in the eighth yeah in the eighth grade, I was certain I wanted it. I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Okay. I was gonna I was gonna be a Republican political operative. What eighth grader wants to do that? I have wow. no idea. But okay. that was it. I wanted to run campaigns. And uh, first job I ever had, 17 years old, I was still in high school, ran a countywide campaign in my hometown of Tampa. We won. I was like, this is it. This is the thing. So I actually thought I had found my one thing very early on. But as I experimented more and more with it in college and also tried a bunch of other things vocationally, I started to realize that my interests were varied, right? I liked business. I liked politics. I liked music. I liked a lot of different things. And so I just placed a ton of little bets in college, right? I played piano. I, you know, worked for the Republican Party of Florida. I worked at the White House. I worked for some startups. Uh, and so that now I'm really starting to become a jack of all trades. Right? Okay, so hold on. And it, yeah. I want to pick your mind though. So during yeah, that, are you a little confused? Like you're just- Very like, confused. Incredibly so, so, confused. Okay, so somebody wrote me an, uh, an email uh, the other day, asked me about some help for business and maybe some coaching and stuff. And he's like- He's like, dude, I've just taken all these ideas and I've just thrown it on the wall like yeah. in, to see what's going to stick. So is that yeah. where you're at? Absolutely. And I think okay. that's most people. And I think early in your career, I actually think that's healthy, right? I, 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 you know, one of the things I talk about Master of One is you don't want to commit to your one thing too early because in order to make the best choice, you need to experiment widely, right? And figure out what you're good at, what you're not good at, right? And so for me, yeah, I experimented a ton in college and then after college, right? So my first job out of school, uh, I went to go, I was, I was basically hired as the CEO of this political tech startup that the founder wasn't operating day to day, right? So I ran the business for, I don't know, 18 months, grew it from nothing to like a half a million of revenue with basically no cost structures, a beautiful business. Uh, but then I left, start my own company, sold that 18 months later. So lots of pivots, right? But along the way, started realizing, okay, entrepreneurship really is my one thing, right? Like that is the common thread. That is the thing that I want to get intentional. Yeah, uh, but for me, like that. to me, I hear that. And I'm like, that's yeah. so broad. Like I have a hard, like I have a hard time with that. So like, what is in your in your, I'm thinking of like a bowling lane right now. It's like yeah. what I'm picturing. So where are your boundaries in that? So sure. like, like, cause you could have, you could have multiple businesses or you yeah. could be in the position. So how do you start navigating that? That's, that's a good question. And I think that that's a, a pretty personal question for everybody to ask. For me, yeah. it was just very clear. Like early in my career, I would have multiple ventures at the same time. Okay. And that never worked, right? Like I got to a place pretty quickly where I realized uh, it's what Andrew Carnegie uh, used to say all the time. You got to put all your eggs in one basket. Like people would tell you not to put all your eggs in your your in, in one basket are foolish. 
I'm telling you as one of the richest men who ever lived, put all your eggs in one basket and watch that basket, right? And, and I, I came to believe that gradually over the course of my career. So for me, it always looked like doing less and less, focusing on one venture at a time whenever possible. And now I, I've gotten, su- I mean, the guardrails are super clear. The only avenue that I have today uh, for my skills as an entrepreneur is Jordan Rainer and Company. It's, it's launching books, launching other content products that helps the church do their most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others. That's really good, man. I like it. Okay. So during your journey, um, I always talk about a story that I like that can't be worse than this. Uh, I don't know if you <laughs> saw that. Uh, and the reason it's my favorite is because I think people relate so well to having that moment where you're like, Uh, I don't know, it could be in business and you're like, man, we're getting sued or we don't have enough money or God, if you don't show up, like everything's going to fall down. I need you to show up. Do you have one of those moments in your career where you're like, God, you've got to intervene and kind of show me what to do? Yeah. So, you know, my second venture uh, which ended up having a relatively happy ending. We, we had a small little exit. Um, but there was a moment where it looked like total devastation and failure, right? We were running out of money. Uh, I was working on the venture full time and we couldn't raise more capital. And so I had to figure out what was, what was coming next for me professionally. And so that was a hard moment, right? Because now I started to question, you know, what is my thing, right? Is it entrepreneurship? I thought it was, maybe it's not. Uh, but, but the real so challenge- So you were doubting yourself at this point. I was seriously doubting myself. Okay. And the real challenge of that season of life was it, it, it really revealed to me that work had ultimate meaning in my life, right? So I talk a lot with my audience and on my podcast about kind of the spectrum of what we believe the meaning of work to be, right? So on the far left end of the spectrum, I think you find, frankly, my parents, a lot of baby boomers, right, who believe there's no meaning in work. Work is a meaningless means to an end. I go to work to get a paycheck, to move on to the more meaningful things in life. And the Bible doesn't teach that, right? Work existed pre-fall, pre-sin. Work is worship, right? I fell and still am tempted to fall on the opposite end of the spectrum of expecting cosmic meaning from work, ultimate meaning, ultimate satisfaction and self-worth. And so when my venture started to fail, I didn't have a sense of self anymore, right? That was devastating. It was the only time in my life where I could say I was genuinely depressed. And what I learned from it, uh, maybe somebody in, you know, somebody listening to this podcast episode right now is experiencing some level of failure was um, failing to be transparent about that uh, ensured that it basically made me miss out on an opportunity to preach the gospel uh, as the source of my ultimate hope to others and to myself, right? Uh, That was was a big, big missed opportunity uh, in that season of my career that I wish I could go back and redo. Okay. Well, before we dive, I'm going to actually, okay, you, you hit some sparks there that yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, mine out for a second. Before we sure. do, I want to just give a quick moment for our sponsor. You know, we're all about being real around here. And if I'm being truthful, I hate shopping for insurance. So recently I found a company that made my life much easier and also helped me find an insurance policy and they help you find all different types of insurances. So what was it? I'm glad you asked. Policygenius.com. So I went on Policy Genius, got a uh, quote. It literally took just a couple of minutes and I got to tell you, to be honest, I was extremely impressed 
with the representative that I had. Uh, they actually text me, uh, followed up with phone calls. They made the process really easy, really impressive, and it all said and done. Absolutely, I got insurance through them uh, because they made the process easy, and I liked dealing with them. So. That being said, why don't you go on there right now and compare and buy either life insurance, different types of insurance you're looking for, get on policygenius.com and see what they can do for you. I do recommend them and personally use them. Okay. So Jordan, you made the comment, you said you found self-worth and work. And I never thought about this. I, I thought that was real good. You talked about baby boomers thinking that work is a means to an end. I've never had that thought. Mm -hmm. I've always thought that um, I feel like I've always been pretty balanced in the sense that like I knew I was created for a purpose and I wanted to live to the glory of that. But including myself, though, I have found in times past my worth in my work. Mm -hmm. And when it fails, like you said, when you're doing as an entrepreneur, you're like doing really well. You're making money. You're like, yes, I'm awesome. God, thank you. Everything's great. And then that can literally change in five minutes yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. Or, yeah. or 10. And then you suck and the world's falling to an end and you're terrible. How did you, um, how have you worked on that or some of the things that the Lord has revealed to you to change that mindset? Because there is a balance in there. Uh, so around this time, I binge read everything Timothy Keller has ever written. He's a and great author. That changed my life. Right. Like, and here's why, right. I think if you were to really boil down the theme of most of Keller's writing, it is this idea, this, this truth that if we build our lives, if we build our sense of self and sense of worth on anything other than Jesus Christ. So basically on anything that is changing, it's shifting, we will always be devastated, right? We will always ultimately uh, have this inner turmoil. We'll always feel like we got to do something else to prove to the world that we're valuable and that we're not a chump, right? It's the it's the it's yeah. the old story in the book. It's the it's the Tower of Babel, right? Yeah. Uh, but in Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, uh, He says that I am an adopted son of God through His work on the cross. And that is what gives my life meaning. That is what gives my life worth. I am worthy because the God of the universe sent his son to die for me so that I could be reconciled to him, right? So that's never changing. That's never going away. Uh, That's my sense of worth, right? That said, I do think the church can swing the pendulum too far in the opposite direction here and saying that work should not give your life meaning or identity, right? I hear a lot of people saying work shouldn't be your identity. And I slightly take issue with that. I slightly disagree. I just, I disagree. I'm with yeah. you on that one. Work is who we are. Us. Like yeah. we, we, we were designed for uh, something specific, for some purpose, for some yeah. purpose that God has imprinted in our hearts. I think God gives us this desire to win and this desire for greatness. And I think that's good. And I think it's God honoring. I think the, the where the line is, is when that becomes your sense of self and when, when it becomes your sense of self worth, Uh, that really can only, should only be placed in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's really good. Okay. Uh, I like that you said that because I think that there is a lot of truth that you hear people do say that, especially in church or something that, you know, our identity is not our work. I agree with that, but there's a very fine line in the sense that 
you know, it's an who I am is an overflow of how God made me. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And, and, and I think that's where people misalign that it's just naturally going to come out of me no matter what I like. I thought it was interesting. You talked about like C.S. Lewis being a teacher. Yeah. It naturally yeah. came out of him. So whether mm-hmm. that was for him writing or teaching or whatever, it just came out. And whether whatever we do in church or at work, um, you know, one of the biggest lies that I hated for years, I heard this guy did me really dirty one time in business. And we went to church together. And his comment to me was, business is business, church is church. Man, geez. Oh, brother. Talk about some bad theology. I about came out of my skin. But when he said that, immediately I recognized there's nothing I can say at this point to argue the fact that he's ripping me off. Because he had a deep-rooted theology of how he viewed God and how he viewed the world. And at that point, I realized that is such a lie because church, business, family, my relationship with God, all of it overlaps. And if we don't recognize that, uh, you know, scripture says the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah. And, and that's where he was at. So. Yeah. That's a dangerous, that's a dangerous place to be. <laughs> yeah, very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about um, flipping through your book right now. I want to talk a little bit about the path to mastery. Yeah. Uh, phase two. So why don't we dive a little bit into exploring? Yeah, sure. So the the book Master of One started with a, a question, right? Like, how do we do our most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others? Like, what is the path to true world-class mastery at anything, right? And so in the book, I outline kind of the, so we did, we did a ton of research, right? A ton of academic research, uh, review of business literature, and I sat down with about 25 truly world-class people who are following Christ. Uh, Tony Dungy, uh, coach of the NFL, uh, NFL Hall of Fame coach of the Indianapolis Colts mm-hmm. and Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, C.S. Lewis's stepson. We talked to the Dallas Mavericks CEO, Cynthia Marshall. Lots of impressive people. And, uh, you know, time and time again, there was basically a four-step path to mastery. Step one, explore, which I'll come back to in a second. Step two is choose. So once you've explored potential one things, making a commitment to master one of them. Step three is elimination. And step four is master, right? And that's basically perennial. You never stop mastering your one thing. But the exploration stage is really, really important. Uh, I, John, are you a fan of Essentialism by Greg McEwen? Uh, I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, it's a great book. Uh, go read that one instead of mine. Uh, it's really, <laughs> it's really great. No, but in it, he basically says that like essentialist, right? Which in the vernacular of my book are people who are focused on, on their one thing. Ironically, spend more time exploring more options before committing to their one thing, right? They take the time to sample a lot of different things before going big on one of them. And that's the advice I outlined in the book, right? And in the book, I outlined kind of these five principles of effective experimentation in your career uh, so that you can place a bunch of little bets and figure out what you're good at. And then, and only then, once you've tested what you're gifted at, you know, choose to go big on one of them. Okay, so I'm just thinking out loud. And and Please. here's the, okay, so... I'm placing lots of bets. Let's say you're further down the road. Uh, Somebody's in their, I don't know, mid thirties, forties. And they're like, Hey, maybe they're in my position. You got multiple things going on. You got lots of bets, but in some places you got bigger bets. You can't afford to lose. That's, that's really an issue because like for me, for instance, I can't bet too much more. Like my construction company is my main bet that provides 
us to do the podcast, um, life, kids, college, all that stuff. Yep. You know, what if, but again, it goes back to, you said entrepreneurship as a whole, but what if you don't feel necessarily called for somebody they are like, man, I like that one thing, but I feel like all these other little areas I would kind of want to get into. Mm-hmm. How do you yeah. juggle that? It, well, I mean, my advice is beware <laughs> of distracting side paths, right? I mean, it, yeah. maybe you pick the wrong one thing, but like, yeah, not continue to do that one thing masterfully well if you're going to be dabbling constantly in other things. That that said, right? Like, you need to have range. You need to have a wide range of interests and hobbies. But like, it's the Google eighty twenty principle, right? Like, spend eighty percent of your time on the business that's producing eighty percent of the results, right? Yeah. Like, and if that's your construction business, great. Double down there. Make sure it's exceptional, right? And yeah. maybe set up systems if you don't want that to be your one thing for every season of life. Set up systems to work yourself out of that business so you can have a different one thing in the next season of life. That, that's one thing we talk about in the book. Like you're choosing, I think a lot of people think of calling a vocation or in the vernacular of my book, your one thing as something that is unchangeable. You, you can yeah, never good. ever Great change. Point. Keep going that's on that. That's not true at all. Yeah. Right. And I think it creates a lot of paralysis in people to not make a decision. And so they just float through life being mediocre at a bunch of different things. Sorry if I'm offending anybody who's listening to this podcast. Right. But you got to make a decision for what you're going to focus to master in this season of life, remembering that number one, uh, there are very few. Uh, irreversible decisions. Number two, there is no right or wrong decision. There's no Mr. Right for your career. There is a Mr. Best. And number three, if you care about doing your most masterful work for the glory of God and the good of ours, I believe there's an imperative to make a decision, right? Uh, That's my opinion, right? But I believe there's an imperative to make a decision. No, I think that's great advice. And I think it starts with what you said uh, at the beginning of uh, my question was being aware of distractions. Yeah. And then staying focused on one thing. And I like that you brought up the fact seasonal. I think a lot of people do say, well, there is paralysis when you think, oh my gosh, what am I called to do? Especially younger kids, college kids are like, yes. oh my gosh, I don't want to miss my calling in life. And I'm like, oh my gosh, dude, you're 20 years old. Go Just do pick something. something. Just go do something. Yeah. It doesn't even matter. Like if you're relatively interested in it, just go do it. Yes. If you don't like it, go find something else. It does not matter. Just work and pay your bills. Yes. <laughs> so, okay, great advice. Beware of distractions. Focus on one thing. If you don't like it, go find something else. And, maybe- and I, would, I would add some caveat to that. Okay, I would say, especially early in your career, right? Focus less on whether or not you like the work or enjoy the work short term and focus more on whether or not there are signs that you could be really good at this thing. Right. So I, I'm, I'm a millennial. Uh, I grew up, you know, hearing my parents tell me all the time, follow your passions, do whatever makes you happy. It was probably the most common advice I heard about my career. Uh, but it turns out that's like awful, awful advice, right? Uh, you know, put, put simply, it, do, it doesn't work, right? So millennials have had more opportunity to, quote, do whatever makes us happy vocationally. And yet we are less happy at work than any generation before us, right? Uh, yeah. And in the book, I cite a bunch of academic studies that show why. And, and here, here's why, right? The number one predictor as to whether or not somebody will describe their work as a calling as opposed to a job or a career is not whether or not they were passionate about the work before they started it. 
It's the number of years they spent getting good at that craft, right? Like passion is a side effect of mastery. You get to love what you do by getting really good at it. And you can't get really good at something unless you spend years and years and thousands and thousands of hours of purposeful practice developing it. Now, that, that doesn't mean that you're not going to, you know, hate, that, that you're going to hate your job for the first five years, right? You, there should be some you know, inclination that, okay, I can really enjoy this, but like the deepest, like soul level satisfaction of vocation comes when you get really good at making others happy through your work. When you get really, really good at just administering the ministry of excellence to people and doing your work masterfully well, primarily in service of them rather than your own happiness. That's how you find both. Okay, that's really good. So I'm a huge fan. I love Zig Ziglar. I have yeah. since I was a kid. Um, you know, he he's always made the comment. He said, um, "If you, I mean, I'm I'm hacking this and paraphrasing, yeah, yeah. but he he basically says, uh, if you'll serve enough people and give them what they want, initially you'll get what you want. Hundred percent. And I like what you said about that because it goes back to what you said at the beginning. If we'll go into it with a viewpoint of, Hey, how can I serve people and learn something in this? I'm not necessarily in it for me right now, but how can I pick up a trade or learn something and just do my best at that, whether I like it or not, while I'm in this uh, skill, glorifying God in it, because that's my foundation. Yes. And if I'm glorifying God, then ultimately I'm going to discover, I like it. I don't like it. But at the same time, I'm giving God glory because I'm being really good at it. You know what made me think of parable perfect is Joseph. You cannot tell me that Joseph liked serving Potiphar. Right. But he, but God blessed, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. Potiphar's entire, Potiphar was a pagan, right? He's an Egyptian, doesn't know God. And God blessed his entire house, multiplied all of his possessions solely because uh, Joseph rolled up on the scene and was doing an excellent job exactly right. serving. And because God was going to get the glory. Yes. Right? So I, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book, like this, the fact that like, uh, follow your passions, do whatever makes you happy. Doesn't work. Shouldn't come as a surprise to Christians. Right? Like, and listen, like I've been guilty of giving my own kids this advice, like slipping up because it's so ingrained in our culture, but here's the deal, right? Like we are called to model our lives after the one who came to not to serve, but not to be served, but to serve, right? Yeah. Follow your passions focuses exclusively on what value a job can bring you and make yes. you happy, right? Like a much more effective and God-honoring strategy is to follow your gifts. Focus on the work you can do with excellence as a means of making others happy. And really, based on, and this is coming from academia, from, from non-Christians, it's the right. only predictable path to finding work that you will stay in love with, not just fall in love with, but stay in love with for a really long period of time. Okay. So I want to give an example real quick for yeah. our audience. I was just thinking about this. So we went through a growth period in, in a phase in our company where we were growing really fast. We took up some contracts and it became really stressful because obviously there's more warranty work. We're having issues with structuring. We have too many jobs going We're like, we're expanding fast. And I got really stressed out. I was getting frustrated and I came to a point, I hated my job. I hated work. I was just irritated. And, but all of it, 100% was perspective. And where I changed my perspective is I thought, God, you've given me an opportunity to be in people's homes. Mm. I want to bless them. Mm. So every morning or every morning, every Monday morning, we have our weekly business meeting and our prayer is God, 
I pray I'm asking for good customers that we can be both a blessing to, and it also bless us that there's mm. this mutual overlap that when we go into their house, we're bringing beauty to their homes. Mm. Yeah. And when I changed my perspective of how I was entering people's lives in their stuff, it was no longer, I'm frustrated about work or, you know, we have this or we have that, uh, my perspective changed. It really is all about perspective. It's all about perspective. It's all about seeing how the, the eternal significance of our work. I mean, this is every week we have a, a conversation about this on my podcast uh, from entrepreneurs to authors to, uh, you know, computer programmers, like how does our work beyond leading the opportunities to share the gospel? Yes, that's important. But I, I think we in the church think that's the only eternal significance of our work. And that's not true, right? Like we are called to create for the kingdom, to build for the kingdom of heaven. And we do that by creating these thin places, right? As signposts to the kingdom. When we create beauty, right? When we restore a home, when we build something beautiful, uh, we're pointing to something eternal. Now, I don't know if that home's going to last into eternity on the new heavens and the new earth, right? right? But it's pointing to something better. It's pointing to something that is possible and, and, and stirring this longing in all of us uh, for something that is good, right? And that, that deep down, we know that that good thing is new heavens, new earth, and you know, us living with King Jesus here. Uh, but there's, there's so many dimensions to the eternal significance of work that you can unpack. And I would encourage your listeners to really mind the depths of scripture and, and figure out how to apply that to their, uh, to their own work. Okay. So let's go on to a little bit. We talked about exploring for the sake of time. We're not, we're going to skip choosing because sure. I kind of yeah. think that's, that's pretty of, simple. That's yeah. pretty simple. Yeah. Eliminating. Yeah. <laughs> so let's jump on eliminating. Yeah, sure. So again, path to mastery, step one, explore, step two, choose, step three, elimination, and step four, mastery, right? Uh, so yeah, so in the book, I basically make this case that once you've chosen your one thing vocationally, you got to be really diligent about eliminating everything else uh, or most everything else from your life that's fine for your attention. Uh, and now I'm talking about vocationally within the confines of work. So for me, I'll sure. give a great example, right? So um, when I took over as CEO of Threshold 360, right? I had a very lucrative consulting practice, right? Uh, Threshold was a client of mine. Board recruited me to be CEO. I took over a CEO. It was very tempting to keep some of those clients at the consulting business that required very little of my time, but was very, very lucrative. But I had to fire those clients, right? Because I knew I could not be fully engaged in the work at Threshold as CEO if I was distracted even in the slightest, right, with those other things. So I had to say no to extra clients. I said no to serving on boards. My wife made the biggest sacrifice saying no to her career. She had a very successful career in finance uh, that she walked away from knowing that I would be traveling away uh, a lot more as CEO, raising capital. So there were a lot of things that we had to say no to. Now that said, I'm not always good at this, right? Like there are things that come up frequently that I'm like, oh man, that'd be really fun. I really want to do that. Like for, for example, we live, um, we live in a coffee desert, right? There's no good local coffee shop within a five mile a coffee race. desert, coffee desert, okay, uh, five mile race of our house. And so every quarter I'll come home and be like, Kara, I, we're going to start a coffee shop. Of course, we're not going to run it, but I know the guy. He's going to do a great job. We're going to be pa passive owners, sit back. And she always looks at me. She's like, Jordan, you know no entrepreneurial endeavor 
is small. And sure, this is a part of your broad one thing, but it's too much. You got to eliminate, you got to say no. So the lesson for me in elimination, right, is you know, number one, you got to get really clear on what you're saying yes to, right? Number two, once you've said yes, you got to ruthlessly eliminate anything that would distract you from that. But number three, long term, you have to have people in your life. Uh, be it a spouse, be a business partner, whoever, that know what your one thing is and will help keep you accountable to saying no to other things that are distracting you from the essential work the Father's given you to do. That's really good advice, man. I like. I just. I had to write that down. Learning to say no, but really comes down to. I like what you said, though, is finding your yes first. Yeah. So, and, and by the way, I think you know. Uh, I think Jesus provides like the best case study of this, right? Sure. So. You know, there's a there's this beautiful scene in Mark chapter one that I think illustrates it well, right? So uh, Mark opens up his gospel with this really productive day for Jesus. Jesus was at the synagogue. He drove out uh, the demons from the man at the synagogue. Then he went to Peter's mother-in-law's house, healed her. Then everybody from the town came to Peter's mother-in-law's house and Jesus healed them, right? And the next day, everyone goes back home. Uh, the next day, the next morning, Jesus is away by himself alone. The disciples find him. And they say, hey, Jesus, everyone's looking for you, right? They want an encore. They want more healing on day two. And Jesus says in Mark 138, let us go somewhere else so I can preach there also. That is why I have come, right? So Jesus didn't come to earth just to heal and reveal his identity. His one thing, his essential mission was to preach the gospel in word and in deed. He knew what he was saying yes to. And that led him to say no a lot through the Gospels. You see Jesus saying no to things. Things that are good things. Healing people was a good thing, right? Yeah. It wasn't the one thing. So if Jesus can't say yes to everything, neither can we. Come on with that, dude. We'll, do, we'll drop the mic saying amen right there. Hey, amen. There you go. <laughs> okay. All right. So as we start to wrap up the show, what yeah. do you feel like, uh, Jordan, your, one of your biggest strengths is? One of my biggest strengths? Um, one of my biggest strengths is discerning the essential from the non-essential. I, I actually think it's like the number one skill you have to have as an entrepreneur, especially somebody who's got lots of different ideas, understanding what's important on a day-by-day basis, right? Yes, quarter by quarter, year by year, but I think it's a daily practice of sitting down and asking myself, what is the one thing that once accomplished is going to make everything else easier or just go away, make these problems go away? So I, I, think, that's, I think that's a strength. How do you navigate that? I'm just curious real quick. I've never asked somebody about that. So how do you discern that? Or how do you, what are some parameters that you use to say, hey, what's giving me the most bang for my buck today on this? Yeah, sure. So first and foremost, you you can't decide what's essential unless you have everything captured in a trusted system, right? So you you can't be comfortable, you know, uh, not doing something unless you are, are, unless you could trust that you have inventory of everything you're not doing, kind of David Allen getting things done methodology. So I'm a big believer in that. But then once that's in place, uh, I'm a big believer in that question that I just articulated. It's simple, but I think it's powerful. You know, what is the thing uh, that once completed is basically going to create the most leverage for the next thing, right? What's going to make everything else easier? What's going to make everything, uh, everything else or, or other problems go away? So for me as an entrepreneur, um, if there's ever an issue with my team, with my people, you know, uh, a personnel issue, some discontent amongst the team or hiring a new position, 
that's almost always at the top of my list of most essential because the right people make everything else in a venture easier, right? Yeah. If there's a problem with a customer or a really big customer that I need to land, right, that's going to help push us towards a big revenue goal, that tends to make its way to, to the top of the list. But I'm a big believer every afternoon, uh, I examine all the projects that I've committed to moving the ball on uh, in this calendar week, right? And I plan out my day, the day ahead. And I put the hardest thing, the hardest most or and or most important thing, most essential thing first. First 90-minute block of the day, that's what I'm going to get into. Mm, that's great advice. Um, and I'm glad, the reason I was asking that, I've been studying, reading, uh, Michael Hyatt's got a book right yeah. now on focus. And I've been yeah. kind of uh, diving through that. So it's been really interesting. Yeah. Okay. What do you feel like your biggest weaknesses? Oh, so easy. Uh, much easier than strength. Uh, I, I'm way too emotional. And I think as an entrepreneur, that's a pretty bad trait. Uh, I, I I think entrepreneurs, I I wear the highs really high and the lows really low. And and, and that can be bad for making rational decisions in the midst of a really rapidly growing venture where the highs are wicked high and the lows are really low, right? Uh, That's why easily my biggest weakness. Okay. (laughs) I think think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with that. That's always a joke within our groups, our business groups, and we talk about it. Okay. um, Jordan, uh, last question. And um, if you could go back to the younger you, what age would you pick? What advice would you give yourself knowing you can't change anything moving forward? I would go back to 21-year-old Jordan graduating from Florida State University, and I would tell him that, and we talked about this a few minutes ago, Jordan, it's good that you want your work to provide happiness in your life, but the path to vocational happiness is getting world-class at something and making others happy first. When you do that, when you focus on the ministry of excellence and loving your neighbor well and glorifying God through doing excellent work, then uh, you find that deep soul level satisfaction of vocation that's sustainable uh, regardless of circumstances. Man, you're the right guy for the generation of millennials coming up, man. You we'll need, see. <laughs> they need a whole lot of that. So, <laughs> okay. So Jordan, where do we, uh, where do we find you? If we want you to speak, find your books, get involved with you, podcast, follow you, all the goods, man. How sure. Do we, how do we Everything's at jordanrainer.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-R-A-Y-N-O-R.com. And if you go buy Master of One there, uh, right now, before January 27th, uh, you're actually going to be entered to win this pretty epic trip I'm giving away for two people to Europe. Uh, you're going to go on a seven-night European cruise. I'm going to fly to Barcelona to take you to dinner. And then you're going to go tour La Sagrada Familia, the world's largest church designed by a true master of one, this guy named Anthony Gaudi, uh, who built designed these amazing attractions in Barcelona and then spent the last 12 years of his life focused on just one project, this unbelievable church uh, that would quite literally, as First Peter 2, 9 says, proclaim the excellencies of God. So if you go to jordanrainer.com, uh, you can pre-order the book wherever you want or order the book wherever you want, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, but go to jordanrainer.com and you can enter the sweepstakes right there. Come on. I'm going to do that. I'm just going to just claim it right now, man. My wife and I are on a trip to Europe. Do it. And we're hey, I'll tell you dinner. what. I'll tell you what. Let's do this. Okay. So if one of your listeners okay. wins, okay. I'll pay for you and your wife to come too. Oh my gosh. Okay. So <laughs> listeners, I'm begging you right now, go buy some books. I got on there. If you buy like five, I think 
or, yeah. or three. Or buy, buy three books. You get five chances to win the trip. Yes. So buy three and then give some away. And if we win, I will make sure you are paid back for your books. And we're all going to go to Europe together. I love together. that. I love that. That's awesome. So yeah, let's all go. Well, this is a family adventure, guys. We're a nation. We are in this to win it. So come on, baby. All right. All right, Jordan. Hold on just a second as we wrap up the show. We're a nation. I love you guys. Thank you so much. I hope this inspired you guys and got rid of some myths as far as direction, uh, calling, things like that. And I just encourage you guys today, be praying as we go into the year 2020. Lord, what do you have for me? What direction do you have for me, my family, my marriage, if you're married? And especially at work and get some clarity as far as what the Lord specifically has for you, because he did create you for a purpose with a purpose and on purpose. So I just encourage you to dive into that and see what he has for you. Love you guys. Please stay in touch. Jump on, send us a message. Casey and I are always here to help you guys. Remember, be real, be authentic and be you. God bless. That's all for this episode of Are You Real? Finding the Authentic You. Be sure to go to areyoureal.org for your free questionnaire to identify your gifts and talents and how you can use them to help people become leaders and catapult them into their destiny to help others become the leaders of tomorrow. We appreciate you spending your time with us and look forward to helping you reach out and revolutionize next time on Are You Real? Finding the Authentic You.